So Easter is, uh, it's sort of the, it's the big dance for Christians. This is the show, this is the game, this is Game 7 of the World Series, this is the NBA Finals, this is what we gather for uh, once a year and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the most important day to us as Christians, because if Christ is not raised, then everything's pointless. Everything's in vain. We don't need to gather anymore if Jesus is still in the grave, if he's still in the tomb, but we believe as Christians that God raised him on the third day to newness of life, that he appeared to eyewitnesses, that he walked on this earth and he ascended into heaven, and that he'll come again one day to bring all those who anxiously are awaiting his appearance back to him. That is our hope. And so we're going to talk about that this morning. We're going to talk about the reality of the resurrection this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you're going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to read to us verses 1 through 11. If you've been joining us recently, or if you're a member of this church, you'll know that we've been going through 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14, looking at spiritual gifts. And it's important to realize that what Paul says here in verse 1 should put into context and into a frame of reference what he thinks about the gospel compared to spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts, totally important. Very important. But 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you've received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance of what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, and then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and you believed. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful this morning, this Resurrection Sunday, for this text that reminds us what is of first importance, what is paramount, what is ultimate, what is supremely significant, and that is Jesus Christ and his gospel, that he lived, that he was crucified for our sake. And that he was resurrected on the third day. We do pray now, God, as we look at your word, that you would make it clear to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we pray that every heart in here would be enamored with Jesus Christ and his love and his mercy and his grace through the preaching of your word. I ask that you help me in Jesus' name. Amen. So three points this morning, a three-point sermon. Uh, The first point is called the Declaration. The Declaration. Uh, One of my favorite things to do uh, over the weekend is we get the weekend edition of the Wall Street Journal, and 
just love to read all the sort of special interest piece, the off-duty section, the review section, um, the opinion section, and so on. And those sections are what you could call or consider to be soft news. They're opinion pieces. They're human interest pieces, as opposed to what you could call hard news. Hard news. Hard news is declaring something that's happened. It's, it's, it's reporting to you a fact that has happened. And if you look at your Bible here, if you look at verses 1 and 2, if you look also at verse 11, you'll see that Paul's using a word there. In verse 1, he's saying that he preached the gospel to you, or to the Corinthians. And the word there for preach the gospel is Paul has basically taken the word gospel and he's verbified it. He's just made it a verb. It's euangelizo. He's preaching the gospel. He's gospelizing them. He's bringing to them the gospel. And then at the end, in verse 11, the word preach there is a different Greek word, but it's the word to proclaim. It's the word to herald. It's the Greek word keruso. So what's the point? What Paul's doing here is he's not bringing you a a human interest piece. He's not bringing you a special interest piece. He's not bringing you an opinion. He's not bringing you soft news. He's declaring to you, he's heralding something, a fact that has happened in human history. And that's the first thing that we need to know and remember about the nature of the gospel. It's a declaration. It is first and foremost not a philosophy on how to live your life. It's first and foremost not how to better your marriage. It's first and foremost not how to be a better father and mother to your children. The gospel, first and foremost, is a proclamation of what God has done in history through his son, Jesus Christ. He's telling you something. Paul, you can almost envision him like a a rider on a horse who's coming from a faraway land to declare to the people that the king has been victorious. The king has accomplished something for his people. The enemy has been slain. The battle is done. The victory is won. And he's coming in to say... There's not something here that needs to, you know, a better way to live your life. I'm telling you about something that changes absolutely everything. Historical facts affect the way that things go. Historical facts affect the way that history continues on from here. The weekend edition of the Wall Street Journal is is fun and all, but hard news are things like the Mueller report has come out. It affects the way things are going to happen in the future. It's not just how you should vacation down in Baja this next weekend. It's not a way, first and foremost, to tell you how to deal with your problems, though it does ultimately speak to every aspect of human life. It is first and foremost, a declaration about what God has done in human history. You know, what's happened to Christianity in the last 150 years or so is that people who would, I suppose, maybe be smarter than you and I or consider themselves to be, they had to figure out how to take the supernatural out of Christianity. 
Once we come into a modern world, of course, and we understand science and, and we understand uh, the, the way things actually are, if we want to continue and have a, a plausible, believable structure for belief, we have to take all the supernatural, they say, out of Christianity. So that means no miracles, no resurrection, no healings, and things of that nature. Because then we can, we can still save a little face the social liberals around us. But Paul's telling us that if you take the supernatural, if you take the resurrection out of Christianity, you've taken everything out of Christianity. If Jesus Christ isn't raised from the dead, then you're still dead in your sins. There is no hope for your forgiveness. There is no hope for your future resurrection if Jesus Christ is still in the grave. So Christianity over the last 150 years has been liberalized. It's been become a social religion to kind of keep in line with all the other religions. Love your neighbor as yourself. And those things are great. Those are the teachings of Jesus, of course. But without the resurrection, there's no power in it. You know, I've considered, I've considered this teaching before when you take the supernatural out of Christianity. And just think for a moment as a thought experiment what that must have meant. If Jesus Christ really wasn't raised from the dead, what does that mean to a first century first believer? Christianity, of course, grew largely in the social outcasts, slaves, those who weren't primarily of noble birth, as Paul will tell us. So what if you took out the reality of the resurrection and you just kind of taught the teaching of Christianity to a group that is absolutely poor, dejected, rejected in the bottom of society. What's the message? There's a silver lining in every cloud. After winter comes the spring. I mean, seriously, you think someone who's living at the bottom of the bottom, and you tell them there's a silver lining in every cloud, that after the winter comes the spring, they're going to say, I'm sold. I'm giving my life for this person. I'm going to forsake everything. I'm going to leave everything because there's a silver lining in every cloud. It just doesn't make any possible sense. It's just not plausible. The reality of the resurrection, the reality of the resurrection was first and foremost at the front of what the earliest Christians believe. And we are arrogant and we have chronological snobbery. If we now look back 2,000 years later and say, well, we know, well, of course, now we know that Jesus really wasn't resurrected. They didn't believe that. They knew it was part of what they, it was at the core of what they believed that Jesus Christ really was risen from the dead. And to close this point before we go on to our next, I just want to press this in to you for a moment. That today what we're celebrating, today what most of the world is celebrating, is this man, Jesus Christ, this man, Jesus of Nazareth, who I think, bar none, hands down, no one would argue with this statement that he's the most important person who ever lived. He's the most influential person who ever lived. The way, we call it 2019 this year, 
based on this man's life. The most important, the most influential individual that ever lived. And every single person needs to come to terms with this fact. That he rose from the dead. You can't ignore it forever. You either have to choose to believe it and accept it or reject it. No longer can you say that Jesus was simply a good moral teacher. He taught good principles. The entire point of Jesus Christ, his entire ministry, the entire Christian religion is based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you can't be in that third spot and be indifferent about it. It's not intellectually honest to be indifferent about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, every single person needs to come to terms with what Jesus Christ himself taught. You can't think he's just simply a good moral teacher. Listen to one of the things that Jesus says in Mark chapter 8. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospel will find it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus is telling the world to deny themselves and to follow him. Good moral teachers don't tell everybody, stop looking to yourself and follow me. And if you don't follow me, I'm coming again one day with my father and the holy angels. And if you don't bow your knee to me and follow me, then I will have nothing to do with you. He says in Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father or mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yet even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. If someone said that today, if someone was standing on the street corner and saying, if you don't, if your love for me doesn't even make it look like you hate your mom, your dad, your wife, your kids, even yourself, then you can't even be my disciple, we would think that person's a lunatic. We would think that person has lost their dang mind. Jesus Christ makes audacious and radical claims on the world. And if you don't know Jesus and you're not a Christian, you're here this morning, maybe this isn't the message you expected on Easter, but you showed up to a Christian church on Sunday morning on an Easter, so I guess you deserve it a little bit. But Jesus demands every single person to come to terms with who he is. Listen to what Polycarp, Polycarp was a second century church father. He became the bishop of Smyrna. It's believed in church history that Polycarp was maybe even a disciple of John, the one who wrote the gospel of John and, 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 and the letters and the revelation. Polycarp's arrested for being a Christian. And at his trial and at his execution, the proconsul says to Polycarp, swear by Caesar. Polycarp replies, if you vainly think that I will swear by the genius of Caesar, as you say, and you pretend that you are ignorant with who I am, hear me plainly. I am a Christian. The proconsul said, I have wild beasts here and will throw, them, throw you to them unless you repent. I will cause you to be consumed by fire if the wild beasts are not enough. 
unless you call upon Caesar. And Polycarp said, you threaten me with fire that burns for a bit, but after a little while it is quenched. But you are ignorant of the fire of the future judgment and eternal punishment, which is reserved for the ungodly. Why do you delay? Come do what you will. People aren't burned at the stake. People aren't thrown to wild beasts for a farce. They believed it. They believed Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead, which moves us to our second point. That was point one, the declaration. The declaration of the gospel is what God has done in history first and foremost. The second point is the witnesses. The witnesses. Paul will go on here and tell us, starting in verse 5, that he appeared to Cephas, and then he appeared to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, more, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then he appeared to all the apostles, and then he appeared to me. Do you see what Paul's doing here? Is he's making a historical argument. He's saying, this isn't something that just started in the dark. This isn't something that happened behind, behind closed doors. This happened in the open. This is a, 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 Jesus' ministry was a very public ministry. He wasn't hiding from people. His death was a public death, and his resurrection was a public resurrection. What Paul's saying by mentioning the 500 people, I should make this point, uh, 1 Corinthians is likely written as soon as 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he's saying, hey, look, these people that saw Jesus rise from the dead, they're still alive. Go ask them. He appeared to Cephas, he appeared to me, he appeared to 500 people. If you don't believe it, go ask them. See, the difference about Christianity and other religions is most every other religion in the world starts and happens in private and in the dark. Joseph Smith has a dream and he says, God told me I'm his prophet. You just got to trust me. You just got to trust me that I had this special dream and now you got to wear special underwear and you're going to be good to go. Or God comes to even the prophet Muhammad and speaks to him in a private way. That's not how Christianity starts. Christianity starts with a public ministry in a public crucifixion, rising in a public way, and the apostles and disciples themselves dying in a public way for this message that they heard because they really saw him raised from the dead. It's absolutely radically different from every other religion. Every other religion does not start and maintain and sustain in a public way. It's secret, private, backroom meetings. And that's not the nature of Christianity. The Son of God was publicly crucified and publicly raised from the dead. Even Paul will say, excuse me, Luke will say about Paul. So the book of Acts is an account of how the church grew. And in Acts chapter 26, Paul will say in front of Festus, As he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. (laughs) Your great learning is driving you crazy. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows the things I'm talking about. And him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped from your notice because you know that none of this has been done 
in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, you're going to persuade me to be a Christian. Because Paul's pushing on him. He's like, you know this stuff didn't happen in private. You know this stuff didn't happen in secret. Why do you think I'm out of my mind? You see the whole Roman Empire turned upside down in the last 20 years. You know it. And he goes, you're trying to convert me, aren't you? And Paul says, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me might become such as I am. Except for these chains. He says, you're trying to convert me, aren't you, Paul? And Paul says, you're darn right I'm trying to convert you. Because you have seen, you've seen with your own eyes what has happened. You've seen the world turned upside down in the last couple decades. Are you going to come to terms with it and reckon with it? Further, we'll get to these names mentioned here in a moment, but I'm going to do it by way of closing. All four of the gospel accounts, we alluded to it this morning in our scripture reading from Andrew, who read from the gospel of Mark, but all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they have something in common in their telling of the resurrection of Jesus. You know what it is? They all recount that the resurrection was first seen by women. They all account that the resurrection was first seen by women. It's accepted in New Testament scholarship that the Gospels are written as historical documents. And so all the Gospels are following the pattern of historians. And the Gospels themselves, they intend to identify themselves based on eyewitness testimony. So they name certain characters, like we've said as a way to indicate to the audience, to us as readers, that their sources are the people mentioned. So the text we read this morning from Mark names three ladies in just a few verses. Verse 1440 says, There were women looking on from a distance. There's Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and Joseph and Salome. And then what Andrew read... Chapter 16, verse 1, And when the Sabbath had passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. These three women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, are the first eyewitnesses. They saw the death, they saw the burial, and they saw the resurrection of Jesus. And Mark tells you their names. Why? A few reasons. Mark's the earliest of the gospel accounts, and as a historical document, the first readers, as we've already said, would have been able to corroborate the facts, so he's writing like a story, but second, here's why it's massively significant. In Jewish law, and in Roman law, the testimony of women was invalid. In Jewish and Roman law, the testimony of women was invalid. Their testimony would not have been accepted. In Jewish law, the Mishnah, 
says that the testimony from certain kinds of people are inadmissible. It says this. It says these are the kind of witnesses that are ineligible for testimony. A dice player. A pigeon flyer. (laughs) Traffickers in seventh-year produce. So you, yeah. And slaves. And it says, this is the general rule that any evidence that a woman is bringing is not eligible to bring. In other words... Just as women, the women can't bring a testimony just like a gambler or just like a slave. It's awful. I'm not bringing this up to say this is a good thing. I'm bringing this up to say that what Mark is doing and what the gospel writers are doing is doing something completely and absolutely, absolutely radical. So the point is this, that if Christianity, if the early gospel writers were trying to make a trumped-up religion, if they were trying to push something forward that didn't actually happen, the very, very last thing that they should do is say that it was first witnessed by women. The only reason that the gospel writers would say this is because it's actually true. There's no other reason. If the gospel writers, if the earliest apostles and disciples were trying to start a fake religion, if they were trying to say that Jesus really did rise from the dead when he didn't, they would put forward as evidence and as witnesses people of high esteem. People that the rest of society and the rest of culture would say, this person is to be trusted. They would not have put someone forward who the rest of culture and society say this person doesn't be trusted. Their, their, their testimony isn't even valid in court before a pro-counsel. The only reason that they would do it, it's paradoxical in nature. The only reason that they would do it is if it's true. And I'll make it aside here. Do you see the radical love and mercy and progressiveness of Jesus? Jesus appears first to women to raise their status, to show them to be trustworthy sources, to show them to have dignity and worth and value. He doesn't send his disciples. The disciples aren't the first ones that get to see him raised from the dead. What a merciful, wonderful Savior. That he would put himself out there and he would say, my resurrection is going to be attested to by people who the rest of society doesn't value, but I value them. I value them. So it's a declaration. It's witnessed. And this is point 2.5 or point 3, which is the final point. The grace. The grace. He appears to Cephas. Cephas is Peter. He appears to Cephas. Before Jesus was crucified, on the night that he was betrayed, he looked at Peter, who'd been with him from the beginning, been his right-hand man from day one. And he said, truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. 
But Peter said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. I'll die before I'll deny you. Later that night, they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following from a distance. And when they'd kindled a fire in the middle of the night in the courtyard and sat down, Peter sat down among them, and a servant girl, a servant girl, a little kid, seeing him as he sat in the light, looked closely and said, this is the man who was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you're also one of them. Peter said, I am not. And after an interval, about an hour, still another said, certainly this man also was with him, for he too was a Galilean. But Peter said, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered what he had said. Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. That look must have been like when Jesus turns and looks at you. If you've denied him three times, and he just runs out and he weeps. The man that he's walked with for the last three years, one of his best friends, his right-hand man, in his hour of greatest need, he says, I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't know this guy. Swears up and down that he would follow Jesus, not deny him no matter what. Hour of greatest need, Peter's gone. But he's not only gone, it says in Mark 14.71 that Peter began to invoke a curse and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. The word in the Greek is the word anathema. Far be it from me, swearing I don't know him. He's invoking a curse. So why is this? significant. Who does Jesus come and appear to? Jesus Jesus comes and appears to Cephas. He goes to Peter. He goes to the one who's denied him three times. And Paul will speak of himself, that Jesus appeared to him, and he'll say, I am by the am by the grace of God. I persecuted the church of God. I was killing people who were turning from Judaism and following Jesus and turning to Christianity. And he says, but it is by grace that he came to me. Grace means grace is an undeserved, unmerited gift. We are all Peter's and Paul's. We have all turned aside. We have all denied him. We've made false promises. We haven't kept them as we should. But it's his grace 
The reality of the resurrection is that Jesus Christ has risen from the grave. And you have now received by faith an unmerited, undeserved gift of love and mercy. It's yours because of what Jesus has done for you. And what does Jesus do when he rises from the dead, when he meets Peter? He goes by the beach, he makes him breakfast. And he says, Peter... Peter, come, come unto my love, rest in my love, rest in my mercy, rest in my forgiveness. He doesn't beat him over the head with a trowel. He doesn't say, you said you wouldn't deny me. He welcomes into his love and Peter repents. Peter turns from what he's done. He turns from his mistake and he throws himself on the mercy and love of the Savior. And that's the hope of Easter. The hope of Easter is that God himself has punched a hole in the walls of this pitiless universe, that he's come down as a man, that he's lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we deserve to die. And if the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true, then everything else that we long for and hope for will be true too. The hopes that every longing heart has of, of, of forgiveness, of security, of comfort, of satisfaction, of acceptance, of welcome, is yours in Jesus Christ. We're going to sing here in a moment as we close our service that ours is the cross, the grave, the skies. Ours, the cross, the grave, the skies. That means that, means that God is redeeming the world through his son, Jesus Christ. So let me close with this Last illustration. You know the story from Les Mis about Jean Valjean. How he's out on parole after 19 years in a French prison. He's a, he's a hardened and bitter man. He's been denied shelter at, at several respectable establishment because his passport identifies him as a former convict and he's finally taken in by this kindly bishop but in the middle of the night Valjean runs off and he steals the church's silver and the police catch up to him and Valjean lies of course and says that the bishop gave him the silver as a gift so the police drag him back to the bishop's house where the bishop not only validates Valjean's deception, but he chastises him for not taking the candlesticks as well. And Valjean is utterly confounded. His identity up to this point has been that of a thief, a prisoner, a sinner, a number. And now he's seen as a human being, and he's been shown mercy. But he's been shown more than just mercy, hasn't he? Because mercy would dictate simply dropping the charges. But the bishop goes further. The bishop acts in the polar opposite way than what would be expected of him. He treats Valjean in a way that overrules what the law demands. He literally stands in front of him and gives him more than he ever dared hope. He takes a risk and he blesses this criminal who has shown no ability to act in a non-shameful way. His love has everything to do with sacrifice. 
and nothing to do with the merit of the one whom he's loved. And this act, this act completely grips Valjean. It causes him to question absolutely everything about his life and the world. And in the musical, of course, he sings this when he says, One word from him and I'd be back. Beneath the lash upon the rack. Instead, he offers me my freedom. I feel my shame inside like a knife. He told me that I have a soul. How does he know? What spirit comes to move my life? Is there another way to go? Can you face trouble? Can you face worry? Ours, the cross, the grave, the skies. The higher, the lower you raise me, the lower you slay me, the higher you'll raise me. An undeserved gift of love, mercy, and sacrifice. Not just forgiveness, but newness of life. Paul says, yet not I, but the grace of God in me. And that's what we celebrate today. We celebrate the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a declaration for what God has done for you. Believe it. Receive it by faith. Make it yours. Rest on his love and mercy. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your love towards us in Jesus Christ. We thank you for radical, lavish love, mercy, and grace that is ours because of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Help us now. Help us now to receive it and believe it by faith. We're grateful and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.